listening to Resist and Restore, a podcast from the Circle of Hope Pastors, where we're extending the table of our dialogue. I'm Johnny Rashid. I use he, him pronouns. I'm Rachel Senseneg, she, her. Julie Hoke, she, her. And I'm Ben White, he, him. Welcome to our episode, our podcast. I'm glad you're here. I love connecting to you with you. We all love connecting with you and extending the table of our dialogue. We really mean that. And today... We're going to talk to Tracy Rhodes, who's an author friend of mine, and, and she's going to share about why, why it's so important to really embrace the diversity of the Christian tradition to get to know Jesus even better. But we're going to start with some talk back. And we got talk back on last week's episode on, on Beth Allison Barr's, the, the interview we did with Dr. Barr, Rachel and I got some good talk back on it. And I recommend you listen to that if you haven't. It's a really good... Uh, the Making of Biblical Womanhood is really just an excellent book, so I recommend that to you. Um, listen to the podcast if you haven't. And then let's get some feedback now, Rich. Let's see what they said. Mm-hmm. Yes, thanks, Johnny. Our friend Bethany wrote to us and said, It's interesting hearing about the Reformation ushering in an era of this idea that women's highest role in the eyes of God is to be a wife and thus under the subjugation of men. I've always found it super troubling that society only values women based on their affiliation to men and what their bodies can produce. Like my aunts on my father's side always want to ask me if I want a man or children. Girl, I got a podcast. I'm an essayist, consultant, activist, professional woman that owns her own crib. But me having a man is the only way to validate my existence? So it's interesting to hear that came from a particular moment in time, and it makes me want to reimagine what in 2021 could be women's highest role in the eyes of God. What is what is women's highest role? Let's <laughs> so reimagine. I know. Thank you. Thank you, Bethany. What what Julie, why don't you speak for all women here? <laughs> You can do it. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) What is women's highest role in the eyes of God? Wow. I mean, it's, I mean, I appreciate the way Bethany, like, outlines all of these things that she's done, like, all these accomplishments, all these things she's worked for, um, which all deserve validation, but Mm -hmm. that's not even, like, her highest role, you know, that's not even what gives her value in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, I don't want to speak for her, but it's like she has to prove it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like women have to prove our validation with all these things, and it's true. Like, often marriage and children are just kind of... um Assumed Sometimes it's explicit, but I think so often it's not even explicit. It's just um, implicitly there in our society's values that that's, that's the epitome of womanhood. Um, anyway, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be naming it and learning from Dr. Barr there and um, following Jesus as a community that can value women, not just for our accomplishments, but um, for our, our calling to be lovers of God and other people and make disciples of Jesus. And, and there's lots of ways to do that. And Bethany's doing that in, in all the 
through all the gifts that she offers. Um, but there's definitely a, a variety of ways to do it as, as diverse as we are people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Bethany really is doing it. And I, I, I I'm so encouraged. I love studying medieval history because in, in those times, it seemed more possible for women to express themselves um, in, in different roles for God um, without marriage and children. And um, we, we see a lot of those examples in the church and... Um, yeah, it's like what happened. I, I long, I long, I long for that time. But I think God has like a fuller. There's a fuller expression of that for us now. What is the Spirit calling us to now? You know, like I, I love the Acts too. Like I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all people, oh, old and young, men and women. You know, um, Peter names genders there, but what? You know, I think it's more expansive than, and there and and there's more freedom than we've ever seen before. And so, what what could that look like for us now in the church, in Circle of Hope, and in the worldwide church? Yeah, a little recap: Beth Allison Barr goes through like a lot of history and um, tracks the 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 freedom of women in the church is kind of what she's tracking. What capacity they have to, uh, what agency I think is the word she often uses, and just a quick recap about the Reformation. For if you didn't hear the the episode, our last episode, um, when in medieval times there was a mutual submission of of husband and wife to the priest, and there was also uh, the kind of the highest religious calling was more to be a religious sister for a woman. Uh, than to be a wife. And that kind of got flipped because we kind of threw out that whole, well, the Protestants threw out that whole uh, kind of religious organization and made it all very much more individualistic, which ushered in Western civilization as we know it. Uh, but it also had, uh, you know, this the expanding freedom for men meant a contracting freedom for women because they had to only be subject in this tiny little place and not really have any community beyond their household mm-hmm. um, or, and you know, not, not as much agency. And so now you're saying, Rachel, we ha- women have in society more agency than they ever have. What's God going to do with that? Right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The temptation might be after reading the medieval account of women and the freedom they had outside of a patriarchal marriage and what happened in the Industrial Revolution to relegate them to the household might be, let's go back to medieval times. But I'm still an Anabaptist, y'all, and I still think some of the things that happened in the Reformation were good, actually. So I want to keep moving forward as opposed to going backwards. <laughs> yes, let's see what happened, right? One of the things I told Bethany, because I, I was talking to her, we were she was chatting both of us, I said... Protestantism made important reforms that we obviously participate in as Anabaptists, and patriarchy rears its ugly head in the Reformation, in the Industrial Revolution. That's what Beth Barr says. 
But I think we need to, hang with me, queer Protestantism further, which I think undoes heteropatriarchy. And I think we actually do this in Circle of Hope. We just taught our cell leaders about marriage and the new creation. And we say in the, in the Bible, in, in, in Paul's letters, the highest love is the love that's in the body of Christ. It's the love that we share as a community, not the love that's contained in a marriage. And so that, that, pre- that preeminent love informs everything else. Mm-hmm. So marriage is secondary to that. And so so you can elevate single people and you can elevate married people and you can elevate, you know, queer people as 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 highly as one another because marriage is no longer the rule that uh completes us. It doesn't sanctify us because we're operating in a whole different framework. So I think that building a community where shared love is preeminent share shared I, i'm in philadelphia so i'll say shared brotherly love um and sibling love is higher than marital love or romantic love i think challenges this um especially when we see how marriage has been so exploited um to create a nuclear family system to stabilize the economy right these are reasons why marriage is valued in the united states um mm-hmm. and there is value in marriage but the love that we share as a body is more important. Um, and I think the more that we elevate that, the more that we hold that as preeminent, the more inclusive we can be as a church. Yes. Yes. True. And I love how the Apostle Paul was doing that with the earliest church in his letters, too. Uh, one one more, I don't want to go back in history either, Johnny, but one more prep to um, medieval times is how like the the image of god was also queered in some ways um we we have these images from that time of like jesus um nursing uh being kind of a mother figure and and nursing people from the cross Mm -hmm. and i really think that that helps if we if we can get out of a, an only mailbox for God, mm-hmm. which we work on all the time in Circle of Hope, and um, imagine God's expansiveness as it is. Then um, it's it's more possible to to live into that kind of Holy Spirit freedom that I think Jesus is really leading us to. And when we say queer, we're saying we're 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 escaping these binaries. That's mm-hmm. what the queer theology, especially, is good at, is good at doing is uh, um, rebelling against the the prescriptions mm. that seem so set when in fact they don't have to be. And not just because there are people that experience themselves that way, but because God inherently transcends that and and mm. and and even and, and always has and i think even the people that were very um binaried in their thinking way back even like um way back when like let's say medieval times they were aware of that like you were saying rachel like you were you're giving a little shout out to julian norwich there who who speaks of jesus nursing her from the cross mm-hmm. um totally but I think I think Julie, you nailed it on your first answer. I just want to say it again. You know, uh, what, what's it going to look like? It's going to look like you being you, mm. my friend, listening here. Yes, You're, you, you be in the body of Christ and be yourself. Mm-hmm. Amen.
so glad you're listening to our podcast. We love connecting with you. We want to hear back from you. Email us at resistandrestorepodcast at circleofhope.net. And if you want to make this podcast more accessible to others, a few ways that you can do that is to give it a high rating wherever you listen. Leave us a review. Give us feedback about what you like about our podcast. Subscribe to it. And then also share it with friends that you think would like it. We want to bless as many people as we can and you can be a part of that and if you want to get involved in circle of hope go to circleofhope.church you can find our sunday meetings and our cells there and you can also share in our common fund as well there's an opportunity to give which um, helps the show helps the church and also in many ways changes how we relate to money so uh, generosity is transformative and so i i hope that you will be generous with us thanks again for listening Hey friends, I'm so happy to have my friend Tracy Rhodes on our show with us. Tracy, it's good to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. Thanks so much for having me, first of all. I am a writer and a Bible teacher, as my official bio says. Um, been a church girl my whole life and grew up in rural Missouri. When I got married, eventually we moved to rural Michigan. So I have been a small town country girl my whole life as well. And since 2014, I have been writing online and interacting on social media as traces of faith. And back then, what is that, seven years ago? Mm -hmm. I don't know that I had a real direct line on what I was going to write about. I knew that faith would be involved, thus the name. Um, It's kind of a spinoff of my name, first name Tracy as well. But very quickly, as I began writing, I saw this idea emerge of a passion for the church, um, a determination, I would say probably a bulldog determination to see the good in it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because as we know, there's there's good and bad in everything. And I try to filter away everything that gets in the way of seeing the image of the body of Christ. That's that's an image I can see so clearly in my mind. And there's lots of bits and pieces that make that up. And I have been writing and talking and thinking and reading for the past seven years on what that might look like. Exactly what we do with all the messes we make of it and what Christ would like to do with it and, and, and intends to do with it. So there's a lot of tension there mm-hmm. at times. Uh, I think we have to be very honest about that journey. But I also find again and again that at the end of that journey and at the end of each mile of that journey, I find Jesus. That's and it's beautiful. worth it. It's that's so beautiful. worth it. So that's me. Tracy, do you think someone can find a perfect church to participate in? I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I actually had a pastor, it was two pastors ago when we were attending a non-denominational church outside of Detroit. And he would often say, if you think you found the perfect church, you should leave before you mess it up. And I loved that idea. Yes. The church while it is what God works in and among is still a very human entity. And mm-hmm. I think as long as humans are involved, we're going to uh, be less than perfect. 
That makes sense to me. So for you, you you wrote this book, Not All Who Wander Spiritually Are Lost, and you, there's various stories and traditions that you talk about, and other people share stories too that have shaped their faith. Can you share some of them, some of your experience with that, and how it's helped you get to know yourself and also get to know God? Absolutely. When I first started writing my blog, uh, like I said in 2014. One of the very first things that I did was start reading other faith-based blogs, other mm-hmm. Christian blogs mm-hmm. in particular. And then I began reading the books of those individuals who were writing the blogs. And it opened up a world that was in many, many ways brand new to me. I remember being somewhat surprised that a person could believe many things differently than me but love Jesus as much as I did. Wow. Yeah. And so one of the first things that I did after reading and um, doing my online stuff was I decided, okay, I want to actually go visit some of these services that I was reading about. And I wanted to try to take on some of these spiritual practices that were new to me, but ancient oftentimes. They just weren't from the tradition that I came from. And the first thing that I did was attend an Ash Wednesday service at one of our local Catholic churches. It was a profound experience. I I have since visited dozens and Mm -hmm. dozens of different places and services. And during um, quarantine, the virtual world opened up to us and I was able to do a lot online as well. Yeah. um, Pros and cons, right? Of course. Of course. And in that Ash Wednesday service, I got home and wrote about it on my blog. It was very well received. I, I quickly realized that there was an intersection between what I was interested in and what my readers were responding to. Mm-hmm. So that's a very good place to be. And that introduction or that Ash Wednesday service actually became the introduction for this book. So it, it, sets the mood nicely for what I tried to do in this book was show readers much like what I explained to you. We can have very different experiences and come from different traditions. We can read the exact same Bible or at least close to it. Some of the books vary and still encounter Jesus and still know Jesus more and more And I would take that one step further. I hoped with this book that I could convince people we could do that even better together. So is it important then to, for Christians who want to get to know Jesus as fully as possible, to get to know the body of Christ too? Like if you're in one tradition and you feel like this is the the place for me, how important is it? for them to even explore or imagine or connect with other Christian traditions? Today, I would say that it's imperative. (laughs) I have become fully convinced of that. You know, I I liken it to the scripture that we read. It's Paul's words, is it Ephesians maybe, that talks about how a Christian in, in their early days as a baby Christian, if you will, mm-hmm. will crave milk and they'll drink milk. And as you mature, 
you get to the point where you can eat meat, right? Where you can have solid foods and where you're, and I think that's a natural part of the Christian journey to encounter other traditions, to learn new spiritual practices, to always be learning. And you'll have Christians all along that road, right? Um, I totally personally strive for abundant life. It's what Jesus promised us that we would have abundant life. And I don't know if I could be living into that fullness if I wasn't getting to know the rest of the body of Christ. So some people may not have time to attend various church services. They're committed as members to one. What are some ways that we can practically connect with others? I know we've met on Twitter. You're, you're more, you are uh, super gracious and <laughs> loving on Twitter, which is often in contrast to me, but you, you so you, you have a real generous spirit. So that's how we connect. Um, how, how else could we encounter other traditions without feeling like it would be hard to commit to a local spot? And I guess, do you think that it's important to make a local commitment to a body? The first question, how how do you do this? Uh, you mentioned social media. I think it's a real gift at offering us opportunities to do this. Every now and then I'll ask on Twitter, which is where I spend a lot of my time. I'm on Instagram and Facebook too, but Twitter and I have kind of connected. Um, <laughs> and I will ask, you know, what what tradition are you? I mean, just a very simple Christian, you know, what sure, Christian sure. tradition are you? And it's all there. <laughs> and, and it's so incredible. And so then if you, let's say you take that one step further and you say, what kind of music do you play on Sunday morning? And all of a sudden you'll have the Seventh-day Adventists say, we worship on Saturday. And then you'll have, a, uh, yeah. you know, these other people say, well, we meet in a house church and none of us can sing very well. Great. You know, the church is that varied and social media can show you, um, the the beauty of that. And then the second way, I do a lot of my visiting other churches on vacation. Oh, wow. Um, yes. Uh, you know, it's a brand new city. So, you you know, we'll have to look up the, the place that you want to visit. I usually shoot off an email to the priest or pastor letting them know, you know, I'm planning on attending. And that way, especially there've been times, like one time I went to visit an Anglican church and I was one of like 12 people there. (laughs) So it was pretty obvious that I was the guest, but I had let the priest know ahead of time that I would be there. And so it took no one by surprise. That's good. Um, So that's a a great opportunity. Another way to like my local church is more contemporary in nature. And so we haven't all, and we used to meet in middle school. So we haven't always had a Holy Week service, for example. Okay. Okay. So during Holy Week, I would go all over the place. I would visit an Easter vigil at a Catholic church. I went to do Stations of the Cross with an Episcopalian church once. Um, So when your church isn't meeting or, you know, the random Sunday, uh, you find the time. And then um, the, the third way is to read a huge variety of books. I'm an avid fan of reading. I think it's a wonderful way to learn about whole new worlds, be they fictional or nonfiction, far away from me. 
And like I say, that that was a gateway for me, for sure. I would read about, for example, someone who converted from the Protestant faith to, I believe, their Greek Orthodox, if wow. I remember correctly. And so his book was about that journey. And like I say, that's that's when holy envy would start to set in because I would be like, he mentioned a taking uh, the Eucharist, receiving communion in a way that I couldn't even fathom. It was so, mm. so radically different from the approach that my church and my traditions have taken to communion. So excellent way to learn. I have done um, a number of series over the years. I have a section on my blog that's called, I think it's called All the Churches, if I remember right. But for example, one series that I did was called Different Beautiful Church. And so I invited different writers and friends to submit essays on their particular tradition. And I remember reading one about the, I believe it's Pilgrim Brethren, Plymouth Brethren? Yeah. Brethren um, tradition. And again, they um, do communion with foot washing. The two go together in a service. And so she wrote about experiencing that. Super beautiful. Nothing I've ever experienced. So those those are three pretty key ways. Excellent. And you asked about the local church. Yeah. How committed should we be to a local church? A hundred percent. Love <laughs> um, to hear it. <laughs> I think the, the local church is where we do our growth, where we do our ministry. and it is, it's family within family, if you will. Like if you could look at the body of Christ as a family tree, my local church is like my immediate family, mm-hmm. right? And then we have cousins and then we have aunts and we have great, great, great ancestors called the early church fathers. That, totally. that kind of um, mental image is what I, what I try to go with. But, and a beautiful thing too, that I have begun to do, I think it, I do it more and more as the years go on is bring what I'm learning to my local church. Mm-hmm. And I do a lot mm-hmm. of, okay, we were taught that, for example, contemplative prayer was wrong. That was a Catholic thing, right? And that would probably mean that you ended up in some mystical, you know, it's like meditating yeah, sure. and et cetera, et cetera. We have all of these wrong thinkings that we've been presented with all of these filters to to take off and as a trusted biblically sound invested member of my local church i can go into my small group or to a you know small gathering of people say let me lead you through a contemplative prayer exercise and this is the history behind you know it, and then it's something that we can make our own as it fits. Um, I find a lot of times, I mean, if you look at all of Christendom, Christendom, Christianity, there's more than you're ever going to be able to do, whether you want to or not. And so I very much trust the Holy Spirit to point me in the direction of the practices that meet me now where I am. But what I have stopped doing is deciding which ones are right or wrong. So maybe even for the pastors that are listening, 
allowing ourselves to connect with different traditions, reading different material and bringing them to our congregations might be a way to help nourish people and um, help them to experience different traditions. It's a beautiful way to grow as a body or as an individual. Yep. The church right now in many ways is not united and that um, we can draw a lot of parallels to how the United States is right now too. What do you, what do you think the most important thing to unite for church is, is it important for the church to be united? And if it is, what's the most important way to do that? What do you think holds us back from it? I point again and again to the passage where Jesus is praying with his 12 disciples, um, et cetera, in the upper room before his crucifixion. And we have, I believe, if I remember correctly, it's John 14 through 17. So a quite long passage where he speaks to them. And then in John 17, prays over them. And in that prayer, he could pray for lots and lots of things, right? He could ask that we only baptize babies. He could explain the mystery of the Eucharist in that prayer. He could do anything that he wanted. And he prayed that we would be one as he and the father are one. And he didn't pray it just because it would be a good idea for us. He also prayed it because it becomes our witness. Mm-hmm. And we don't, obviously I'm passionate about it. I wrote a book about it. We don't pay enough attention to that. Um, that it, Some of his final words, some of his very final words. Now, saying that, whenever you say the word ecumenical, it's the E word, even though it's not four letters, and unity, people get very nervous. <laughs> and I have had people say to me, I don't want one church. I don't, I don't think a one world church is a good idea. They've said to me that they can't imagine being a part of a church with XYZ member that believes, take your pick. And I think that misses the point to, to a large degree. Uh, I'm sure as with anything else, there have been some bad and wrong things done in the name of ecumenism. But the the phrase that I hear often as I talk about it with people is unity does not mean uniformity. So we're not creating little robots that follow Jesus, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're a bunch of humans that follow Jesus. And mm-hmm. I come from a different place than you do. And our traditions are different. And if you if you go into our ethnicities, they're different and they bring. And I think what would honor Christ the most. And I I don't know if we can accomplish with the Holy Spirit. We can with the Holy Spirit. We absolutely can accomplish this. But bringing all of those things together and serving Christ. And encountering Christ and understanding how someone who grew up with African-American spirituals experienced Christ versus me who grew up with ancient hymns that were written by a bunch of the Methodists and Baptists, you know, one example. But I think bringing all of that variety under the umbrella of Christianity and learning how to learn from one another is the goal. It's the ultimate goal. And I think, and I think glory will give us that. Do you think that I I like what you're saying? Do you think that there is a moment Mm -hmm where a denomination or a tradition might be too harmful or too damaging to participate in. 
I think that you got to that. Some people are afraid of unity. Is there a moment when their fears, in your opinion, are warranted? The gospel, as it stands, is the life, death, resurrection, eternal glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. And there can be a lot of people who believe in that, but get a lot of other things wrong. Um, and, and as I said, there can be a lot of people reading one Bible and coming up with a lot of various conclusions. But if you have that at your core, and if Christ is our center, then I think we continue to do the work. Now, saying that, if an individual has been very harmed by attending a fundamentalist church, mm-hmm. They don't have to go back into that environment. And I think that's part of the beauty of what I'm experiencing and what I have learned is that there's still a church for them. It might do their heart a lot of good to sit in a circle in a Quaker unprogrammed service where it's silent unless the spirit moves someone to speak. And the time I visited, the spirit moved no one to speak. Wow! <laughs> and so for 60 minutes, along with my 11-year-old daughter. You guys are just quiet? We, we sat there. Yes. Yes. But um, at the end, then, I, if I remember correctly, they don't call it prayer requests. I want to say they were, they said, um, is there anyone who would like something lifted up to the light? I think is how they said it. Okay. And so different people would mention things then, but it was after the service per se. And you know, I, I only went once. I didn't make a regular pattern of it, but I could easily see how if you did, there's a lot of Holy Spirit work and a lot of holiness that can be accomplished in that silence. It allows him to do a work in you. And then if you, you know, if you grew up Catholic and, and that was harmful to you and, so, you know, maybe maybe you... um I have friends who grew up Catholic and were told their whole life that nobody else outside of Catholicism would be in heaven. Mm. Very damaging. Um, and and so maybe you could come visit me at my church and we, you know, we would hear the electric guitar and the keyboard and now we don't get too crazy. We're pretty, pretty calm as far as contemporary goes. But I think exploring the wider tradition of Christianity can be very helpful. Um, especially if people had a bad, even traumatic experience in one. Can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Are there churches that feel too sexist or too patriarchal for even you? Like, are there moments where like, I am so not welcome here. I don't know how I can stand alongside of you in worship. It's a good personal question. There are. My My line is probably less less so than others. I will tell you, I will not say a name, but there is an individual who is very much complementarianism mm-hmm. and patriarchal, also very well-known teacher and pastor, and has said some hurtful and, in my opinion, damaging things on social media more mm-hmm. than once. And this summer, I teach a Bible study at my local church, and 
we were in a study session and this lady had gone through her library at home and was had some books that she was handing off to other people. So I was going through them to see, you know, if there was something I would be interested in. And there was one written by this gentleman. And if I remember correctly, I actually think she recommended it. She said, oh, I think you would like this one. So I took it, saw who the author was and was like, in my mind, I'm not reading this. No Mm -hmm. way. You know, this guy's a jerk. And on the way home, that Holy Spirit whisper came came to me. Never, I, he has not spoken audibly, but yeah, he, he said in a whisper, "Could you learn something from him if you read it?" And I mean, this this book's about the Bible. You know, it's not about how to be a jerk if you believe in patriarchy. <laughs> Was it? You know, sure, sure, sure. It, it was. Um, he he's a believer. It's, I mean, God knows his heart more than I do, but my assumption is he's a believer. And I, it was a good, it was a good opportunity for me to wrestle with that, because if you preach it, it goes, it it goes on both sides, right? Um, I have not read the book. You didn't <laughs> read it. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure it's fine, but I was like, okay, I I would read it, and that was enough for me. <laughs> that was good enough. <laughs> yeah. I'm dying to know who, but I'll, I'll wait till after. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I might tell, tell you. <laughs> I work with a lot of people who can't bear to get back into the church because of their spiritual trauma, upbringing, or even in their being a young adult or even older than that. Where is God in our trauma? And how, how does the church, how can the church be a part of that? How can you, how can you get back to a place where you felt um, harmed, traumatized, even abused? First of all, I hope we as mature Christians, those of us out there who are mature Christians, mm-hmm. would sit with that because you don't get to enter those situations and rattle off an easy, an easy answer. Sure, of course. That's, that's not fair. That does not promote healing. It doesn't take anyone to the cross of Jesus. It, it simply, I don't know, I guess shows your knowledge. I don't know what it does. It shows a bunch of pride, I think. But so so that's what I would say first. And secondly, as I think about this a lot, not just in these last 30 seconds, I think we're perfectly fine to have time with just Jesus. Mm. Um, and, and by that, I mean the spiritual practices that we've been given, um, time praying the Psalms, time sitting in silence. I, I, I actually envision a lot of times me offering with my hands. Um, we're on Zoom so he can see I'm, That's right. I'm lifting my hands and offering them out. I, I actually envision myself offering him my church hurt. Um, I have not been traumatized, praise God, but he he's more than capable of walking with someone beside something like that as well. And so I think letting you and Jesus do that work is fine. That's beautiful. I, I do not think Jesus will leave you there. <laughs> um, a, as you are healed and as you read scripture and continue to grow in your understanding, which we all are, of what the body of Christ means and what Christ intended for our church communities. I 
I don't think he's going to leave you to do that alone. I'm not sure what that will look like. Again, I mean, in my mind, it could be a house church of three families. I think that can be church. And I think that's part of the process of what the church in America can think through. You know, what I, I think we have a lot of assumptions about what church should be and how church should look. I think we can redefine that. Um, as needed. I have other people who, so you're saying you can be with Mm -hmm. Jesus on your own. If you can't enter a church setting, you can find a cell or a small group or a house church, even that extends Mm -hmm. you and connects you with others. I love that. I have people that seem to be a part of the church tradition because that's what, that's what they grew up with. It hasn't particularly harmed them. They're used to it. They have a hard time sharing it with someone else or inviting someone else, but for them, it's what's comfortable. (laughs) So apart from the community and the church, they don't necessarily have intimacy with God. So what advice would you have for them? Yeah, it's almost as if there are some instances where church is a family tradition. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. I would go back to my exploration that I've done simply because I think sometimes they need shaking up. Yeah. Right. And so I, I have a friend here locally who was, when we talk about our different childhood experiences in the church, she grew up Catholic and I want to say middle school, if not high school was the first time she met someone who was a Christian that wasn't Catholic. She went to parochial school, you know, the whole, the whole bit. And so she came home and she said, mom, so-and-so is a Methodist. What does that mean? And the mom said, we're not going to talk about it. (laughs) Methodists were off the table, right? Um, So since then, she has obviously learned a lot more and, and grown in her understanding of Christianity and who that might entail. But yeah, I think um, as much as they're willing, I would encourage them to to do some exploring. And again, in this world, that can be done virtually. You can go to YouTube and you can find a charismatic preacher, you know, who is completely different from your formal priest who is, you know, doing doing the sign of the cross as they go through their different liturgical movements. So you can do it secretly even, <laughs> but I would encourage you to do it. I just think it shows a more beautiful picture of who Christ is and what Christ left us than you can find in your one tradition. I love that idea. I'm raising kids, five and an eight-year-old, two girls. Mm-hmm. I'm a pastor. I have a church. Presumably, they're, they're a part of this church because of that. How do I help them spiritually wander? How do you help your kids explore like you're talking about, especially at formative years when they could conclude that this is the right way to do this or there's a wrong way to do it? Mm -hmm. My first answer is going to sound an awful lot like the answers I've given. They need to meet Jesus first. Um, He's just the absolute cornerstone. From the, a very, very early age, I have a um, 13-year-old, so not too far ahead of you in years as far as parenting goes. And she has seen me sit with my Bible for hours. Um, we have 
prayed together. We give her uh, a priestly blessing every night, the blessing that's found in numbers. And so there's some foundational things that I believe need to be in place, but that list isn't very long anymore. It, it was longer 13 years ago when I was a new parent and before I had gone very far on this personal journey. I share a story in the book mm. of um, I, I was baptized at seven. It was a believer's baptism in a Southern Baptist church and received communion, Lord's Supper after that. And I don't remember it being like a hard and fast rule that I knew about. You couldn't take the sure. Lord's Supper until that, but I'm pretty sure that's the way it happened. And so my daughter, when she came along, we were attending a Reformed church. And the Reformed tradition will, they kind of, to a certain degree, leave it up to the parents. Um, it, within my church, we will hold infant baptisms, but we also... Well, if the parent decides, we'll wait and baptize the children at an older age. But in our teaching, in our official church teaching, my understanding is infant baptism. So I'm attending a Reformed church. And by the time my daughter was born, I had heard our pastor give a couple of sermons on what the Reformed tradition understands that to mean and what that baptism would signify in her life. And so we did choose to have our child baptized. And then I don't remember the exact year. My guess is she was four or five. We were attending a Methodist church in our in the village that's like right next to our, our house. I visit there pretty frequently. It's a, a wonderful church that I enjoy visiting. And again, our church meets in a used to meet in a middle school. And so for a time, we were not able to use that building during like Easter, for example. They gave their custodial staff the holidays off. And so there were a couple of Easters where we either did something different or were encouraged to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so this was um, an Easter Sunday like that. And so we were at the Methodist Church and it was communion Sunday. I saw the table set up at the front of the church. And we had not ever talked about communion. My daughter had not seen it because our church, we sing with the children and then they go off to Sunday school. So to my knowledge, she had never even seen anyone do communion. And I didn't know. There was a point when I thought maybe I would have her do a believer's baptism as well. I mean, these, I was like thinking through these things and deciding my theology in real time. <laughs> sure. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't like I sat down whenever we baptized her at 13 months or whatever. I was like, okay, so what's the rest of this look like now? Um, and so before the service started, I explained to her what the communion service was. And um, it, as near as my mama heart could tell, she did believe in Jesus and had asked him to be her Lord. She by that point was regularly like baptizing kittens and uh, you know, the whole, the whole bit, she was definitely on a Christian path and her responses um, made it very clear to me that she was without a doubt ready for communion. 
um, I, I have since then, this would be a different conversation. If I had a baby today, I would give her communion, mm-hmm. <laughs> like without even quite. So again, these are, um, these are journeys that we go on, but I, I want, her, like I said, there are basics that I want her to know, but there's a lot from my growing up years that I don't want her to know. Um, I I don't want her to think that Catholicism is 100% wrong and those Catholics cannot go to heaven. (laughs) I don't want her to think that the Orthodox worship Mary as the fourth member of the Trinity. I, I want her to know that there are some additional books that are in some Bibles and not in ours. And it's because of history. You know, I sometimes I'm sure I overwhelm her, as you can imagine. But, um, you know, she has uh, she has a prayer book that is from the Episcopal tradition. She reads devotionals that are written by good old Southern Baptist women. Um, so I'm trying to offer her a foundation that is solidly on Jesus and then a variety that we can celebrate beyond that. Um, she, as I said, she did go to the Quaker service with me. I've taken her to a Russian Orthodox church. Um, she's also done Greek Orthodox. Uh, she's gone to mass. We accidentally ended up at a veneration of the cross service. It's in the book. And each time it's so interesting. She always says, I like my church. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, is there any better message that we can send our children? You know, um, she's she's not necessarily thinking that all of these are wrong. She's just solidifying that she likes to worship the way she is. That's beautiful. Yeah. What would you do if your kid or so, or tell a parent whose child ends up in a tradition that they really disagree with, they think is dangerous or even might hurt them? How do you enter in when? you find that there's differences. Like I'm a, we're an Anabaptist congregation, mm-hmm. peace, love, and people, you know, and I'm thinking, what if my, uh, what if my kid joins a congregation that's like, I don't know, super into the military or something like that? How do I, or American flags or, you know, patriotism, you know, mm-hmm. that type of thing. How do I, how do I bridge that? Pray. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of prayer. Um, and again, uh, I believe that any church that I have been in, you you know, you asked me earlier, what would I do if I ended up in a church that felt super patriarchal to me or super fundamentalist? Um, I I could go clear to the other end of the spectrum, too, and say super liberal. And, you know, they're they're bringing out the snakes to, you know, heal people. And uh, what do you do in those situations? And I'm speaking as a visitor. It is going to be a little different if they become like a full-fledged member. Sure, yeah, big time. Um, but I always look for Jesus in those circumstances. You know, if you visit that church that is saying the pledge to the flag and singing the Star Spangled Banner, I surely hope there's a round of amazing grace that comes in somewhere. <laughs> you know, um, and... And I believe, I have to believe, um, because I think Jesus Christ is the truth. 
the truth, the way, and the life, right? So if we bring people again and again, no matter what kind of crazy church they're going to, to Jesus, then I I think that encounter with truth is going to do the Holy Spirit work, right? That's um, that's not our job. Does that make it easy? Uh, uh-uh. no. Oh my gracious! There, you know, I think there are healthy conversations to be had. Especially, I mean, you know, let's take it one one step further. What if your child someday is becomes part of a cult? Sure. You know, where they tell you you shouldn't even see your parents. Their church is so different from what, you know, cry. I, I mean, we know how weird Christianity can get. Um, yeah, what if it's a, an, an actually dangerous place that is threatening them, you know? Lock them in their room. <laughs> Probably I mean, not at terrible. 30. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I think um, it, if, if I were put in that situation, I would look for and pray for, pray hard for opportunities to have one-on-one healthy conversations with them. You know, we can only go so far with pointing a finger or sending a Bible verse or, you know, it, it, the heart has to be ready to receive it too. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think I would look for those opportunities and lots and lots of time in prayer. Yeah. That posture is really great for helping our kids hold to faith that they don't have to conform to what our faith is like or our tradition. I'm a fan of saying, uh, learn to repot your faith like it's a plant, put it in a new pot so that you don't, so you can, so it can grow and adapt. Um, and it doesn't need to be rigid. Um, but what happens if our kids lose faith? Some parents, might even freak out about that. And especially ones that are very eager for their kids to be on the right path. You know, mm-hmm. my parents were worried mm-hmm. to send me off to Temple University in Philadelphia because it wasn't a Christian school. And my sister went to Liberty University, so quite a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do with if your kids lose faith or with the fear that they might as they explore wh- who they are and how they relate to God? Mm-hmm. I'm going to lead with prayer on that one as well. Um, I remember years ago, I was leading a Bible study and there was a gal there who I didn't know very well. And as I got to know her over the the months that she attended Bible study, I found out she had two children who were highly special needs and they were not healthy Mm -hmm. um, individuals. I think cognitively they were probably not going to reach a point of uh, adult mental aptitude either. And I remember her sharing about those children. And of course, the early days when there was so much time spent in the hospital and learning about the diagnosis and what have you. And tears in her eyes, like as honest as the day is long, she said, they're not mine. Mm. Like, I cannot hold them that tight. Because so much of their life is in God's hands. And I have carried that lesson with me, obviously, to a spiritual realm as well. Um, we, we do offer our children the, the faith that we have as we know it. Um, I absolutely want that to be centered on Christ first and foremost. 
And if she leaves that someday, that's going to break my heart. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm going to pray over that. I am going to trust that she sees my example and my faith. Even more so, I'm going to trust that God is chasing her because mm. he is her. She is his first. Mm. Yeah. And please, I mean, and I, and I know you know this and walk this with me. These are just words. That's that's going to be and it is for people I know, for people, you know, so, so hard to live out and to walk in every Christmas when do you get together and sit around the table and when it's, you know, time for a baptism in the family and that family won't come because now they're not practicing Christianity and they don't do church. You know, I mean, these are, these are real life things that people encounter. And so we, we don't want to, um, to make light of them, but Jesus is still in them. You know, you, I think you asked me probably three questions ago now, where is God as we do these things, as we encounter family difficulty and as we encounter church abuse and church trauma, et cetera, et cetera. And I think he's right there. I don't know how his heart takes it because we know what it does to our imperfect human heart and he's holy and righteous. So I, I don't know how, how he can handle being there, but I truly believe that he walks every bit of it with us. I love what you're sharing and it relates to something I'm going through too. My mother asked me straight up the other day if I was LGBTQIA affirming as a pastor. And she's an Egyptian immigrant, very conservative, mm-hmm. very traditional, super patriarchal. And when I told her I was, she she was brokenhearted. Mm-hmm. That her she thought I was so off the mark, off the path. She, you know, um she thought it was a shame uh, she thought I'd be going to hell, even as a pastor. And so it brings me hope that, you know, and for me, from my end, all I'm asking for is acceptance, you know. And so there is value in ecumenical acceptance, even when we disagree. I think because there's dignity on the line, you know. The one one thing I won't do, even when... I won't even, even when I won't worship with somebody because I think their theology is too damaging is I won't take away their faith. It's good. You know, if, if you say what you say, I'm going to, I'm going to believe you and hold you to that too, Mm -hmm. because you Mm -hmm. say you're, because Jesus is Lord for you. So that's Mm -hmm. comforting to me. Uh, My question then is how do we let we we're, we're into this in circle of hope, letting the next generation of the church lead us. How do we let them do that? How do we let young people who are experiencing God in new ways lead us, older folks, about what we think we know is right? You know, and also where do you, where do you think the church is going? What new territory is the Holy Spirit leading us in? Well, let me answer that in a short tweet. <laughs> um, I think I know if Jesus is at the center of that will be okay. Um, I I think part of what's going to be really fun, I'll say fun, really um, inspiring from the generation coming up 
is that they want to experience God. Uh, I, I don't know that they're as attached mm-hmm. to the the doctrinal statements and to sure. the boundary lines that we have created with our 317,000 denominations. Uh, I think <sighs> they just want a holistic experience of God. Um, and there's a number of ways to find him in our church traditions and in our spiritual practices and in nature. And God is, he loves to be found. Um, and I think they will lead us to, to that. Um, what does church look like? I, it's interesting because I am a very deep thinker and I am pretty high in discernment but I would not call myself a visionary. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like God just kind of shows me two or three steps, not big, not the big picture. So I, I, if I were to guess, I'd be wrong, probably. But <laughs> um, he's got it. I have, I have no doubt about that. And I think, um, I think the openness to things that, that I didn't even... I, like, honestly, one time my worship pastor said to me, you know, well, he said something about liturgy and I was like, I don't even know what that word means. So I had to go home and look up the word liturgy and, you know, the creeds, I didn't know the creeds growing up. Um, I found out later it's because my tradition is non-creedal. So we've even made a fight about the creeds. So um, I think we're going to, join hands with our ancestors again. And maybe that sounds, maybe that sounds hokey, but one thing that really, and we, this has not come up yet, but one thing that also really inspires me and helps me have hope for church now and for church in the future is that we're not really encountering anything that's very new. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, if you go back to different points in church history, they fought about whether women could be pastors. Um, they, you know, the Catholic church has made women doctors. What does doctor mean? I don't know. You know, um, we've been fighting about how to do communion since the early church fathers. So instead of making it a fight or a debate, or you have to decide what's right and wrong, I've tried to just see it as a conversation. That's great. And we can, um, you know, we, we can discuss those things and I can learn, oh, I, I see your perspective in that. Um, I read a book recently and you'll know the name of it because I know that you interact with her on Twitter. Melissa Floor Bixler. Mm-hmm. Had it. And what's her latest book? How to Have an Enemy. Yes. How to Have an Enemy. And... I like, I really like her writing, um, liked both of her books now, but I will tell you that some of the things that she presents in that book, I don't even know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like she, she will mention something and biblical. I mean, I, I'm not at all saying she's right or wrong. I'm just saying my mind doesn't even think like that. Mm-hmm. Like she's been, she's been presented with different teachings and landed in different conclusions that I haven't even considered. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad 
I'm so glad that I can read words from people like her who are come from a very different place than me and consider those and again offer them up to Jesus. What what would you have me to to see here that maybe in my pride or in my ignorance I haven't seen? Hmm. Um, it, because. What what she writes about, hopefully what I write about, what um, this gentleman who I won't read writes about, it, abundant life. We're, we're, we're aiming totally. for abundant life. Totally. We want, um, and, and that comes from more of Jesus and all of, all of these bits and pieces of the church um, can help us experience more of that. Well, thank you, Tracy. Let's go to your book. I want people to, it just came out last year, so I wanted to pick it up. Um, not all who wander spiritually are lost. Can you read us a portion of that? Give us a taste of, of what readers can expect. Sure. One thing I'll note too, just it ties very much in with our conversation. There are 16 of my friends and writers, some, some are friends who aren't writers, who have written essays in this book, and they all come from different walks of Christianity than me. So I think that adds a lot to the overall premise of the book, if you will. But I am reading towards the end of the book. I'll just go ahead and read it. Uh, The chapter is called More Wandering to Do. As I read about these faith experiences, I began to realize what my own faith was missing. Not a perfect church, or a return to my Southern Baptist roots, or a plunge into a radically new faith practice. What I wanted was more of Jesus, however I could find him. That idea caused me to evaluate my faith up to this point. Where had I found Jesus before now? In a Methodist church, on an old gravel road in Missouri. On the faces of friends, also family, at Mount Pleasant. When my family brought our collective broken hearts to First Baptist because we are tired of seeing pastors let go, at my Catholic friend's house in high school, in the little community a few miles away from my childhood home where the Mennonites live, set apart for God, at the megachurch, Second Mm -hmm. Baptist, led by one of the godliest men I've ever had the privilege of knowing, among the charismatics who saved my brother from a lifestyle of sin, over a glass of beer, discussing theology with my single friends in St. Louis in a fresh, surprising way on the face of Pastor Bob, who preached because life had given him a theology degree. Just last Sunday, when Larry led us in worship and Pastor Jason got up afterward and spoke straight from scripture and from his heart. Well, that is so beautiful. You're a gifted writer, and I hope that our uh, readers take advantage of that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on now? Any projects that we should look forward to? Yes, I have an Advent reflection booklet. It's it's not a traditionally published book, but actually my local church approached me June or July of this summer and asked if I would write 23 reflections for the season of Advent. Excellent. My daughter is a budding artist, and so she has six illustrations in this booklet as well. And it will be made available to my email readers um, as a PDF. And where can we subscribe to your uh, to my your, email your newsletter? Yeah. Yep. 
um, if you go to my blog, tracesoffaith.com, there's a section at the top called, I think it says subscribe. Okay. And it's just a short film that you fill out. And my email is uh, every week on Saturday. I send out seven faith-related, interesting links. Super, super no bothering. (laughs) Just just a little get in touch each week. And where can we find you online? You said you're like Twitter. Tell us your handle. Yeah, my um, Twitter handle is Traces of Faith. That's also my Pinterest handle, I believe. And then Facebook and Instagram are Traces of Faith blog, B-L-O-G at the end. All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes. It's been so good to talk to you, Tracy. Thanks for this conversation. You as well. Thank you. All right. It's time for spiritual show and tell. Y'all ready to share what's nurturing your souls? Yes. Julie? (laughs) This is a podcast. You can't nod. Sorry. She was nodding. Yes. <laughs> we can see each other, <laughs> by the way. Love that. Nice. Okay. Well, they know you're ready, and uh, I already knew because I can see you. Um, who wants to go first and ch- give us a, a piece of um, how God is providing for you? My friend Melissa Flora Bixler was coming to town. She East, She's going to Eastern University to do some teaching there. She also went to Palmer, which is uh, my seminary. Love Palmer. And... When I heard that, I was like, oh, you want to speak at Circle, too? So she, she heard about us because of our debt annihilation team. I'll tell you about that sometime. And she joined our Sunday meeting and offered a message. And it was just great to hear her voice and her perspective. She was talking about Romans 11 and Jews and Gentiles and drawing that into, just like we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, lines that keep us separated, lines that the word she said was the excess, the excess um, nature of grace changes. So grace overflows and changes what would otherwise appear to be natural differences between us. And she connected it to a town in Arizona next to a town in uh, Mexico that were right next to each other, separated by an arbitrary border. Mm-hmm. And for her, the excess grace changes that relationship. That's a beautiful message. I, we actually have it on a on our message podcast, so I'll link that. But what 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 encouraged me was people gathering to the worship together, to to hear a word and to connect with one another. And it was so good to talk to her after about what she's doing in Raleigh. And also my friend uh, Michael Gonzalez at the table of Philly, another church here. Talked to him, too, who came to hear her. Um, it gave me some hope to connect with other siblings in Christ. So that's what's been nourishing my soul. Oh, that's... Uh, oh, go ahead, Rachel. That that just sounds so good, Johnny. Um, I don't I don't think I have... Uh, I didn't have a message as, as good as Melissa on Sunday, I'm sure. But my moment that is nourishing, nourishing my soul is coming from um, our Sunday meeting, too, where I, I was giving the message, and I kept looking up and, and um, acknowledging folks who were coming in the door. Um, I think we have a little bit of a late culture around Circle of Hope. I, I'm probably responsible for that myself. Like we run late? You think we run uh, yes. late? It's the parking. <laughs> it's the lack of parking. Thank you, Julie. 
Um, but anyway, as people were coming in the door, I was stopping and acknowledging them. And it just, it, it, it just kept happening. And I, I felt like we're having a family reunion. Like it was a little taste of the, um, my friend Sal wrote this song that he called the, the church is calling. And it just felt like one by one, God is calling us back into fellowship with one another, you know, whether we're doing that virtually or like even on this podcast right now, I think, I think that Jesus is calling people together. And I had that, I had that sense of like being drawn together, um, in our meeting on Sunday. So that, that continues to nourish my soul. Hmm. I just have to say, I responded there too quickly. It just it 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 um, <laughs> reveals how I feel when I come to South Philly because I'm driving. Plenty of people ride their bikes, walk, or close by, but I feel like I can never find parking when I'm down there. The parking is terrible, Julie. It's it's a valid point. Sometimes it takes me 45 minutes to find a spot to go to park at my house. Oh wow! Yeah. But I really love the opportunity to park illegally in the middle of Broad Street. That always makes <laughs> I, me you know, feel I, so powerful. Yes, you can do that in South that. Philly. <laughs> Fifteen years in Philadelphia, I've never done never that. <laughs> no, I don't illegally you ain't, park. You ain't living, man. I only I know, started I like two you, years ago, Johnny. Martin Luther said, sin boldly. That's what we're doing here. Park wherever you want, baby. It, it is dangerous. I mean, so anything could happen to your car there in the middle of Broad Street. So oh, I, I still love doing it. And my car was totaled. That? <gasps> oh, that's At right. pastor's meeting. Your car was totaled in the middle of the my street. My Prius still was there, totaled brother? in the middle of the street. Yep. But it could have been totaled on the side of the street. Yep. It had nothing to do with it being the middle. Yes. Mm. Is that what you... And, and, <laughs> I don't know. You told your family this convincingly? <laughs> it was a good deal for us. The insurance company gave us good money and we got a new car. It's fine. Well, maybe one day we'll move beyond cars. But until then, pray that the SEPTA workers can come to an agreement yes. here so that we don't have a gridlocked city in two weeks. Yes. That's our transit authority, y'all. Mm-hmm. Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority. Mm-hmm. Very important workers. Mm-hmm. All right, let's keep going. All right. Julie, what's your what's your show and tell? I'll jump in here. I have been my soul has been nourished this week, this weekend actually by um what I'm going to say was gazing on the beauty of the Lord. My neighbor came mm. to the door with a bouquet of dahlias, the likes of which I have never seen. They are the most beautiful flowers I have ever had in my hands. Like, I just keep staring at them. They're in the middle of my dining room table, and they are so wildly perfect. And she was talking about the fractals that they make. Mm. Um, The design, like, each one of them is so different and almost looks like a... a, There's no comparison. I was going to say, like, a firework, but that doesn't even get close to how beautiful they are. And the colors are so vibrant. I just keep getting drawn back to the beauty of these flowers. And what keeps coming to my head is that phrase. Actually, um, it's from the Psalms, but we sing it, to gaze on your beauty. Um, Rachel, I'm looking at you. What is that song? Morning Star. We No, no, we sang it last week. This is my heart's desire. This is my prayer to you. 
um, to rest in your house and gaze on your beauty. And gaze, gaze on, on your beauty. beauty. Yep. That's it. It's Psalm 27.4. Let me read it to you. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. So, this week, dahlias are helping me gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Mm. Awesome. Thank you, Julie. Yes. I love that image. I just want to call these images to mind. Um, the one that Melissa shared of Arizona's arbitrary border. If y'all just imagine the line, the, the totally straight line that runs through the desert. So arbitrary. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that, that it would be a division. You know, it's it's just ridiculous. And then we've got these uh, this wild beauty of the dahlias. I like that you said there, Julie. And uh, Rachel's family reunion love, just feeling it. So good. I was away last week in, at a conference, and I got to be led in worship by Proskuneo Ministries. And Proskuneo means worship uh, in Greek. It could also mean kiss. It gets translated that way, too. Mm. Uh, I like that. And uh, they're, the, they're from Georgia, and they do multi, wildly multicultural worship. They write songs in multiple languages, and they have people from all over the world that are part of their songwriting team and they do like like they, they do this kind of stuff like they lead worship and and you know in creative and kind of kindred ways i felt a, a strong sense of connection to them as a circle of hoper that they were getting us to worship in these um uh you know more than just singing but the songs that they wrote were also bangers and in in other languages the one that stuck out to me the most was it started in uh we it, it, basically we were just saying christ reigns in a bunch of different languages, but the first language we sang it in was Latvian. Mm. Because, and they, they said it this way, and they, and they just explained it so clearly, it's like, we want to start on the same page. You know, like, we want to be together. It, we thought it was likely that no one in this room speaks Latvian. You know, you speak, and, and in this room, people spoke a lot of different languages. I'm sure it would be a, a warm thing to find out, oh no, I do speak Latvian, <laughs> when they introduced it. But, uh, you know, we're all learning this language, and then we're also learning the Korean line and the Spanish line, and we also sing it in English. Hmm. So, I really recommend to you Proskuneo Ministries. They've got YouTube channels. They've got albums out. Um, Proskuneo.org. I'll put it in the show notes. I put it in your Spotify playlist for worship. Beautiful. So, uh, great to be with you again. That's our show. Uh, again, write us at Resist and Restore podcast at circlehope.net. If any of this resonates with you, just tell us something. We want to talk back because this is all about extending the table of our dialogue and we just extended it right into your earbuds. Yeah.